Coming to you live from my mother-in-law's bedroom. She's right behind me. She's... Yes, I am. You can, people can hear you, Maggie. It's happening. You're on the recording. You're officially on the podcast. Thank you for letting me use your bedroom. Uh, my father-in-law's here, too, as well. We're getting, we're getting the whole family involved in this ad read. This episode uh, is with Edward Evenson from Brains and Slush Pool. Conversation about the Chinese mining migration uh, is ongoing here at TFTC. Obviously, Matt and I have been talking about it on Rabbit Hole Recap. I had Leo Zhang on earlier this week to get some color from his perspective. uh, And I thought it would be beneficial to you freaks to get the perspective of somebody who's operating a mining pool and interacting with uh, Chinese miners directly as they attempt to move their hardware outside of China's borders and across the world. I think uh, one of the illuminating pieces of information from this conversation with Edward specifically is the distribution of hash rate uh, amongst multiple jurisdictions, not only North America, not only the United States, not only Canada, uh, but we're seeing uh, hash rate land in Kazakhstan, Russia, uh, Scandinavia, and Latin America as well, which is good. It seems that hash rate is distributing geographically, uh, which is a good thing, which is what we want to see. We will see how long it takes hash rate to recover to all-time highs. Edward seems to think it's going to take quite a bit, like I do as well. Um, But you're not here to hear a rehash of the conversation. You're here to listen to the conversation, so I'll let you freaks get to it. This writ was brought to you by... Our good friends at the motherfucking Cash App. Cash App's help you stack sats, send sats, receive sats, sell sats, if you so please. We're saying sats, 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 because sats are the standards. 100 million sats in one whole Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. You don't have to buy a fraction of Bitcoin. You can stack whole sats instead. And the Cash App makes that extremely easy. You can dollar cost average into sats via the Cash App. You can set daily buys, weekly buys, and bi-weekly buys as well. Uh, set it and forget it. Any amount as low as $1, I believe. Uh, and on top of that, Cash App can be your bank account. They're offering account numbers and routing numbers, so you can get your paychecks direct deposited into the app. And uh, Little Birdie told me that they're working on Lightning Network integration uh, at the Cash App as well. So expect that on the horizon. A little inside information from TFTC here. Uh, if you haven't downloaded the app, make sure you do so. Use the code StackingSats. That's S-T-A-C-K-I-N-G-S-A-T-S. You're going to get $10. And $10 is going to go to our good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. Owls lacrosse. This rip was also brought to you by good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you Bitcoiners a lending platform. Lended Hoddle Hoddle is a new non custodial Bitcoin backed lending platform that allows peer to peer lending and borrowing between users globally, anonymously, and on your own terms. No KYC, no AML. They're leveraging Bitcoin's native multi sig properties. <clears throat> so you put your Bitcoin in collateral into two or three multi sig escrow. You hold one key, your counterparty holds one key, and Hoddle Hoddle holds the third key, um, the benefit of this is that you get visibility into the wallet throughout the duration of the loan that you take out using your Bitcoin as collateral. So you know your Bitcoin's not being rehypothecated. You know what it is in that two or three multi-sig wallet. Uh, and you're going to get your sats back at the end of the loan when you pay that back. Um, so yeah, again, you put your Bitcoin up as collateral. You get stablecoin liquidity. Uh, if you have stablecoins laying around, you want to get some yield on that, you can enter the other side of that order book, put your stable coins up to be lent out and you'll get a little bit of yield on top of that. So create your own offers and set your own terms 
today on lend.hodlhodl.com. Breathe, 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 lend.hodlhodl.com. Also available to U.S. users. Very important, one of the few products that Hodlhodl offers available to United States citizens who, who are under a strict regulatory regime. Our government does not like us doing doing certain things, but lend.hodlhodl.com is available to you, U.S. citizens due to the non-custodial aspects of the multi-sig setup. Ooh, breathe, breathe. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Compass Mining. Compass Mining is here to help uh, distribute mining, get more individuals into the mining game the way it works. So you go to compassmining.io, you pick a mining model, you purchase the miner, you own that miner, and then you pick a co-location spot with competitive electricity prices that are going to allow you to mine profitably. So you take that miner that you just bought, and you get assigned a VN number, uh, and then you pick the co-location spot uh, with the electricity rate that you want, and Compass gets that miner, plugs it in, and starts streaming sats to a wallet of your choice. Uh, miners getting cheaper, getting cheaper with this uh, migration. Obviously, we, we discussed this uh, in this episode with Edward. Um, so if you're an individual looking to get into mining, Probably not a bad time. Probably a, a, a good time to buy low, buy low ASICs. Compass Mining, again, is helping individuals do that. So go to compassmining.io, check it all out, um, especially if you're interested in mining personally. Uh, last but not least, disclaimer Edward is uh, an employee of Brain Slush Pool. And this episode was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains and Slush Pool, right? Brains, they have their Brains OS Plus firmware, which is allowing you to stack more sats. We'll explain how that happens in a little bit. The Brains team tells me the Slush Pool update is planned for July. It's July 2nd. could happen any day now. Uh, they are just triple and quadruple checking everything in simulations to make sure it's silky smooth when the transition uh, to the update goes live. Meanwhile, the latest Brains OS Plus firmware update includes full support for the AntMiner S17e and T17e as well as some significant improvements to auto-tuning for all X17 devices. And it's available now at brains.com slash OS slash plus. That's brains with two I's, B-R-A-I-I-N-S dot com slash OS slash plus. Brains OS plus is compatible with any mining pool. This is important information. You don't need to mine a slush pool to use the Brains OS plus firmware. There's a bit of misinformation going out. Uh, it is dispelled in this episode as well. If you don't mine with slush pool, you're not going to get the 0% pool fees, though. That's the one benefit if you are using Brains OS Plus and you do point your hash at Slush Pool, you're going to get 0% pool fees. Uh, since network hash rate is at one-year lows due to the China crackdown, now is a great time for miners to juice up their ASICs with auto-tuning firmware and stack even more sats. For those that don't know how it works, it mostly comes down to the silicon and the hashing chips. There are small variations in the silicon quality for every chip in an ASIC. Typically, stock firmwares... <laughs> Breathe that come with the machines, treat the entire device as a uniform unit, sending the same frequencies and voltage through the hash boards. Brains OS Plus boosts performance by experimenting with different frequencies and voltages on each individual chip to learn which chips are higher quality than others. Then it calibrates to send more work to the higher quality chips and less work to the lower quality ones. The end result of this per chip tuning is more hash and thus more sats per watt of power consumed. Currently supported devices are the Antminer S9, S9i, S9j, as well as the S17, S17 Plus, S17 Pro, T17, T17 Plus, and the ones just added, the S17e and T17e. Next up, 
are the What's Miners, of course, along with S19s from Bitnane. Whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Get me that What's Miner firmware, please. Stay tuned, TM, for more updates on the firmware and slush pool and check out insights.brains.com for content, stats, charts, and mining profitability tools to stay on top of everything happening in the mining industry. Enjoy this episode with Edward Evenson. I'm going to go catch my breath and maybe have a beer. Enjoy the 4th of July weekend, all my fellow American freaks. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. What is up, freaks? It's your boy Marty Ben here. Talk about the great Bitcoin mining migration. We talked with Leo Zhang from Anitra Research yesterday. Now I'm sitting down with the whipping boy or the whip handler, Edward Evenson from Brains slash slush pool. I don't know, I forget how it's like. How do we introduce you? Brains and slush or just brains? Um, Any's fine. But uh, yeah, it's all under the brain's umbrella, but more people know slush pool, I guess. So it's good to mention both. Yeah. Edward was just good to be back. Yeah. You're back in the Czech Republic. You're making fun of my height. Apparently 5'9 is the global average, but it trends towards the shorter side of things. So I have 5'10 on my license though. So I'm a little (laughs) above average. Something I've noticed is um, if you're below six feet tall, you know exactly to the you know fraction of an inch how tall you are but if you ask anyone above six feet tall how tall they are they honestly probably don't even know yeah yeah i hope my son gets to my in-laws genes and he gets over the six foot mark it's a it's a very big badge of honor for for males throughout the world i, I don't get to wear that badge thank you for pointing that out i was happy to learn that i was taller than you were expecting which is never never the case yeah, it was good to uh, to see you on that outdoor stage in Miami. That was a wild time. I wasn't expecting fifteen thousand people to attend that. Yeah, it was it was wild. It was hot. COVID was in the air. Apparently, I uh, it got into my lungs or my my body as well. Um, I'm full of recovered now. It was You're basically it. indestructible now. I know That's how it works, right? Yeah, yeah. I can do whatever the hell I want now. <laughs> run around giving people the finger like hey i'm immune i'm immune now ah what the hell's going on we like i said we talked to leo yesterday you were a little perturbed you're like oh what the hell you talked to leo about the china stuff now you want to talk to me too yes edward i do want to talk to you you have a very interesting perspective having an insight from brains that's actually one of the first alarm systems that went off at least in my mind was uh, the pools. You guys have some unique insight into the hash rate markets and what's going on specifically. Um, I, I think yeah, I was just worried because Leo's so smart. I didn't want to be stuck in a situation where he's already said everything and I'm here just repeating what he said, but I'm happy to offer whatever I can. I, well, I think you, I think you have an interesting perspective. I think we're going to, it's going to be additive to the conversation we have with Leo. 
Uh, I think you're interesting too, Marty. Thank you. Oh, oh thank you. Being uh, <laughs> taller than expected, I'll take. You're just sort of dishing out compliments. I thought you were going to bring the whip today. Try to whip me into shape. Um, but yeah, you've been facilitating uh, a a bunch of, I guess we'll say, deals or migrations from China to other parts of the world. We really focused on North America yesterday with Leo, but I, I think you're seeing that um, a lot of machines are going all over the world. What are you seeing? I'm not going to speak for you. You speak for yourself. Yeah, sounds good. So I've seen a lot of things. Um, it's really dependent on where the miner was in China uh, when all this started happening uh, in terms of the crackdown and saying you can't mine in the various provinces, first Inner Mongolia, then Xinjiang, and then sort of you know Yunnan and Sichuan right next to each other. Um, and what I'm generally seeing is machines, especially maybe older generation ones before the 19 series or the M30S pluses or plus pluses that were mining in Xinjiang are often finding their ways to Kazakhstan or Russia. Um, this is due to proximity and just, you know, long-standing uh, routes where these mines, uh, these machines could be moved to those markets. And this is also because a lot of these large miners in the Xinjiang and Sichuan region had already placed pretty significant orders with the manufacturers. And when kind of evaluating what they wanted to do with their old machines versus their new machines, it seems like they wanted to move the old ones that they've already ROI'd on and, um, you know, have less market value because they are used to some of those closer markets that maybe aren't as secure in terms of a regulatory environment or stable as say like EU or North America. And then the new machines they want to ship directly to places like North America and, and the EU um, and sort of split up and distribute their operations. Um, this has sort of been underway by the largest of miners for quite a while at this point. But, um, you know, the recent events have simply just sort of put the pedal to the metal and accelerated everything. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like it's really happening, especially if you look at the hash rate and block production. Since the last difficulty adjustment, looks like we're having the largest downward difficulty adjustment ever right now. Estimated to be 26.7%, which is pretty massive. Um, in terms of these miners uh, relocating, whether it be Kazakhstan, Russia, North America, or Europe, what what's the capacity looking like from your perspective? Or are these large operations having trouble placing all of their miners in one location? Are they having to diversify their, their hosting uh, providers just to make sure that they can get all their machines plugged in? Yeah, it's especially difficult for the larger ones to place all their machines in a single location. Um, there wasn't too much rack space available in these various regions, um, specifically Europe and North America, even before all this happened. And this kind of just, you know, strained that even more to the point where almost immediately a lot of that rack space was spoken for. So they've had to sort of transition into these arrangements where they provide some sort of, you know, capital injection up front to expand uh, the infrastructure of some of these operations and increase its capacity. And then, of course, they will have the, uh, the privilege of using that capacity at a very low rate in the future and, you know, re receive some of their capex back in, in many forms um, or joint ventures, profit sharing. It's been sort of a, a 
transition period for a lot of these miners that were used to the plug and play operations of Sichuan and Xinjiang, where, you know, you go, you approach these facilities and they say during these months, it's five to 5.4 cents per kilowatt hour all in. No questions asked. That's pretty, you sign the contract and you, you start mining. And then in these months, it's three to 3.3 cents per kilowatt hour. Whereas now with the, a lot of the agreements they have to enter into, it's, this is the base rate to, for the first three years, as you recoup some of your investment. And, you know, after that, there's going to be a profit share with this specific percentage based on however many machines you're hosting with us. Or maybe there's a joint venture where they, they both uh, invest in uh, the new power capacity. Um, you know, there's there's a there's much more options in these markets that they have to consider, and they're also generally going to be a bit more expensive than what they're used to over in China. And some have actually taken the the wrong approach to this. A lot of smaller miners of uh, maybe not even small miners, a lot of medium to large size miners have banded together, thinking that would increase their chances at securing better rates abroad. But this has sort of backfired because you know if you if you pull your miners together and you're you're collectively 500 megawatts trolling around the world looking for rack space, you're not going to have too much luck because, you know, no one has 500 megawatts sitting there ready for you to set up shop and start mining. Yeah, that's what I'm most interested to see play out over the next 6, 12, 18 months is, is how quickly do these machines get plugged in? Like, what is, what is the hash rate recovery look like after after this migration? Like you mentioned, a lot of capacity needs to be built out uh, on the front end before anybody can take on hundreds of megawatts in many parts of the world. Um, so just what have you seen on the pool side from uh, obviously we've seen all the Chinese pools lose significant amounts of hash rate um, slush. I think you guys have held up pretty well um, during all of this, but just uh, in general, like how do you, how do you see, the next year, year and a half of, of hash rate and difficulty adjusting to this this new market dynamic with, with all the Chinese miners scrambling for uh, hosting providers and, and places to plug their machines in. Yeah, I'd say it's, it's definitely, in my mind, it's going to be, um, you know, end of 2021, most likely well into 2022 before we start seeing a return to uh, the former highs in terms of global network hash rate. Um, uh, so far, it's just been a, a trend up and to the right in terms of global network hash rate. And I don't think we start seeing that slow, steady trend can uh, return, I should say, until maybe three to four months from now. Um, this is for several reasons. One is, as we just mentioned, there's not a whole lot of rack space and it takes a while for this stuff to be built out. Uh, people in Texas specifically, just off the top of my head, are really scrambling to get some of this rack space out quickly. So I think you'll see some, uh, and then that's in, in tandem with the new machine shipments from the manufacturers rolling out on a monthly basis as well. Um, and a lot of these are kind of scheduled because they've delayed them on purpose due to recent events. So to start rolling out in like the January, August timeframe. And so I think it'll start being maybe like, you know, two to four month window before we see the, the global network hash rate start to consistently climb again. Um, the pool point you brought up is interesting as well, because if you were watching the pools, it's pretty revealing on sort of the, the pool makeups and, you know, in terms of where their hash rate is coming from. We saw uh, via BTC climb a lot of the rankings. It had been pretty obvious that they were mostly active in the CIS region, Russia region, for quite some time. And that sort of benefited them in the long run. 
And, you know, you see some pools drop as much as 50% in their overall um, network, or rather hash rate on the pool. Um, and whether or not this hash, all that hash rate will return to the pool uh, when it comes back online in another geography is, you know, not certain. I know that um, for a lot of the people I'm, I'm helping move, there's definitely going to be some, some conditions attached to that. And naturally, other pools are thinking the same. So um, you'll probably see, as these miners come back line, online, a more uh, even distribution of hash rate in these pools in terms of which countries they're operating from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's we're witnessing a seismic shift in the industry right now. And, and, and one thing you mentioned is that you're helping a lot of these miners uh, create relationships with hosting providers abroad that have rack space um, and capacity to, to plug in machines. And I, I guess that's another interesting dynamic that has really been driven to the forefront of, of the market in the last six to eight weeks is the notorious, notoriously opaque uh, Chinese mining industry has been forced to open up lines of communication with the rest of the industry abroad. Um, and they've been using pools when I understand as, as sort of the facilitators of um, these relationships, if you will. So what's that been like in, in, in ha having uh, the, the Chinese market sort of open up to the rest of the world and, and being forced to, to have conversations and, and do business with, with people they may otherwise not have done business with if, if this ban didn't happen? I think it's really fun and interesting, actually. Um, I had some experience over in China before, and it's really fun to sort of connect them with people in, say, the United States, and maybe people that haven't worked with anyone from, you know, the Far East before, or specifically China, and, you know, sort of educating them throughout the process on, like, how to communicate with them, um, how to kind of get what they want, and vice versa. Um, and also seeing, you know, being reminded what it is specific miners value versus, you know, from different regions. Um, and then just some of the um, familiar experiences of doing business um, from, you know, with people from various cultures. A lot of it is about uh, relationships in China. And they, you would think that they're more interested in getting directly connected with these hosting providers across the world, but that isn't such a priority to them as much as uh, them putting full trust and knowing the person they're working with that's helping them get set up over there. Um, and, you know, making sure that some of these people looking to host these machines have some uh, Chinese speaking talent on their team for better communication efforts. Um, what else? It's just, it's been really, really fun. But the, the difficult part about it is that there's just such a huge, you know, inbound number of inbound requests for hosting space from a lot of these Chinese miners, both small and large, that uh, you can't possibly accommodate all of them. So you kind of have to uh, balance it based on, you know, first come, first serve, as well as potential benefit working with these specific partners and do your best to find space for, you know, those handful of people and also help the others where you can. Um, and then on the opposite end, you have, of course, everyone in these various regions across the world hearing that miners from China are looking for places to put their machines. So they're all reaching out on the opposite end saying, hey, if you are working with any of these miners, please consider us. And there's, you know, there's no way you can do due diligence on all these different operations and 
um, you know, exactly what it is they're offering and who's the most trustworthy. And it, it gets real messy really quick. So you just have to stay organized and um, make sure you connect the parties you know and trust with each other. And hopefully they can come to reasonable terms. Yeah. And you say you've been facilitating a lot of activity in Texas. What's I mean, Texas, uh, everybody is saying is the new mining mecca of North America. Uh, what What is the Texas market scrambling to do right now? I, I mean, you said they're scrambling to build out capacity, but how, how much can they realistically take on within the next six months? Uh, that's difficult to say. So the, a lot of the people I've um, spoken to, so say, you know, companies like Priority Power or um, other energy producers from the region are pretty ambitious in their, their estimates of what they can roll out in the next six months. Um, you kind of have to sort through people that just have the energy, but like none of the infrastructure is available or, you know, those where it's only a matter of getting a transformer um, uh, to the site, which, you know, can be like a three month lead time versus, you know, ones that already have the, the warehouse and all the previously mentioned stuff sorted already. The last being, you know, the most rare out of all of them. But, um, you know, you'll hear, I can roll out 200 to 250. I can roll out 100, you know, sometimes much smaller. I can roll out 10 megawatts. Um, it's, it's difficult to say what's actually realistic. I mean, you know, of course, they're interested in getting the business, so they're always going to push the larger numbers a little bit. So I guess time will tell. But it's important to note that a lot of these companies have been doing this for a long time and have, you know, thousands of clients in some cases. And uh, this isn't something they're new to. And so they have experience rolling out these sort of larger operations over 12 month timeframes. Um, so I think it's, I think realistically Texas in the next, I don't know about six months, but in the next 12 months could roll out at least a gigawatt of energy, probably maybe even a gigawatt and a half to accommodate some of these miners. Hey, um, oh, we just got to figure out if, can handle the heat in Texas, right? There a lot of the, these operations are going to have to immerse these machines in, in cooling liquid down there, especially in the summer. Yeah, and that's also been an increasingly uh, common topic, especially amongst Texan miners, is experiments with immersion. And as I'm sure you saw, uh, Bitmain also announced that it's uh, kind of pushing its own immersion system now. Um, and everyone's sort of heading in that direction as CapEx lowers and um, a lot of people want to squeeze as much juice out of their machines as possible, so to speak. Um, and it, it couldn't be, you know, it's really well suited for the Texas environment, especially some regions of West Texas where it's very, very, very hot in the summer. Um, very dusty and dry in some cases, even in some parts of Texas. I know it's humid in a lot of Texas as well, and that's a consideration. But um, it seems to solve a lot of issues. And I've heard of no less than like maybe you know, seven or eight different immersion cooled systems that are being tested from these various facilities to see which one makes the most sense for them. And it's also caused us to shift focus a little bit in terms of some of our product line and making sure that it's ready for uh, immersion support and ready to sort of accommodate these miners in those areas, not only from the immersion aspect, but also like the, the grid aspect in terms of the load balancing programs or if they're a controllable load resource and making sure that they can you know, turn those miners on and off in the appropriate time frames so that they can secure the cheapest energy. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, 
especially in Texas, those CLR programs are are all over the place. So, and to educate the freaks out there who may be unaware, Edward's alluding to is at the firmware level um, when you're when you're part of these demand response programs, uh, being able to shut down your machines and ramp them back up within what 15, 20 seconds is is usually what you guys are aiming to do when when you're at, uh, with brains specifically, correct? Yeah, it's a matter of just trying to do it as, you know, making sure you can do it uh, safely and as quickly as possible because, you know, each region has its own requirements. So if you just make sure it's as fast as possible, you're going to be able to accommodate all those regions' requirements. But yeah, something like, you know, um, up to 70% power in 15 seconds or less and 100% power in under 40 seconds. Um, and then shutting them off in under 10 seconds. Um, and which allows a lot of these miners to, you know, get electricity rates in between when you average it out throughout the year anyways, between like one and two cents per kilowatt hour. Um, and in extreme situations like those, that ice storm that hit Texas uh, this last winter, you know, they've probably made back uh, almost a year's worth of electricity costs by selling back some of that, that energy to the grid during those peak hours was, you know, we had, we had seen and heard of rates spiking to $9,000 per megawatt hour when selling back to the grid. So it was uh, extremely lucrative to be a participant in some of those programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is primes another interesting question. Obviously, a lot of the drive behind the ban in China is the fact that a lot of these miners are sucking up electricity from the grid that was increasingly competing with consumer electricity needs. Uh, and as we have this mass migration to new markets around the world, how do you view this on-grid risk uh, outside of China? Do you think it's as big in the long run? Do you think uh, there's lessons to be learned or, or we're sort of inoculated from a regulatory perspective over here in the U.S. Um, when it comes to, to on-grid political risk for, for these operations? I think there's always going to be some, some small level of risk present when you're on grid, um, just because you're inevitably going to be dealing with governments uh, directly when you're on grid. But it, it's just fundamentally, and I think irrefutably, much smaller than uh, what you know the risk of mining on grid in China. Say, um, I think anyone that was familiar with China's history or had, had worked out there, um, the recent events and the crackdown on mining in that region wasn't a question of. Um, if, but a question of when. I think a lot of people's surprise was just that it happened this soon. Um, and uh, I, I wouldn't have the same concerns in an environment like Texas uh, when mining on grid as I would in China for many reasons. But um, that some of that risk is still present. But th there are certain buffers in places like, say, the United States, where um, you know the various various states have their own laws and regulations. And it's not likely that the federal government steps in carte blanche and just bans everything. So there's still somewhat of a buffer there. And then we often see even some states offering some incentives for Bitcoin mining in the United States now, uh, primarily through the form of tax incentives. So, you know, um, if you hire mostly local workers in some of these more remote areas that maybe don't have as much job availability or opportunity, you're going to receive some tax incentives. Um, you know, maybe you're going to receive some tax breaks and in other areas, if you start using some of this um, excess power, we've seen Governor um, Abbott from Texas welcoming miners. Um, it's actually on a Twitter spaces earlier today, and AJ from Galaxy had raised a good point that 
this doesn't necessarily mean, you know, deep widespread support from politicians because talk is cheap, especially from a politician. Uh, it's really, really easy to get on, on the news or Twitter or something and say, Hey, we welcome all of you guys. It's a very different matter to actually enact uh, legislation on the books that is supportive of that. However, I know um, Kentucky has done so. Um, Texas looks like it's well on the way to doing so. And the only real negative uh, proposed legislation we've seen in the United States, as far as I'm aware of, was that one from New York, considering uh, cryptocurrency, a moratorium on cryptocurrency mining uh, within its borders. I'm pretty sure it was shot down, though, although it is up for review again at some point next year, I believe. Yeah, the uh, I believe it was an electrician union came out and sort of shot that down, saying, hey, this industry is providing us a lot of jobs within the state. Um, but yeah, that bill... If you read it, it's just terribly written by somebody who doesn't understand cryptocurrency or the English language. Uh, and when you look at the interest of like protecting mining in some of these regions, um, it, it, you know the inbound amount of machines, even if China hadn't done what it done to Texas and, and and certain regions of North America, were just immense anyways. When you look at some of the order sizes from these publicly traded mining companies that are ordering tens of thousands and in some cases over a hundred thousand machines at once. Um, the interests are getting uh, stronger and stronger and more entrenched in these areas, I say. And also, you know, worst case scenario, if, if a specific state does decide to outlaw it, um, as we're seeing, these miners are very mobile and can simply move to a new jurisdiction. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the beautiful things that's really been highlighted in the last month specifically is how resilient the Bitcoin network is and how mobile these ASIC are, ASICs are. I mean, it's incredibly sad to see. Um, I mean, I said this with Leo yesterday, but I'll repeat it again. It's incredibly sad to see that uh, a, a cohort of Bitcoiners uh, in the, the Chinese mining industry specifically, uh, a cohort that's been extremely ruthlessly competitive and, and cutthroat and innovative throughout the first 12 and a half years, of, of Bitcoin's existence, uh, it's a shame to see that with the stroke of a pen, they're forced to scramble like they currently are and, and potentially lose a lot of money in hash rate and, and Bitcoin in the long run. However, with that being said, it, it is extremely encouraging to see how resilient the network itself has been um, in, in the face of all this. Yes, blocks are coming in at roughly 13 and a half minutes um, right now. Let's see. Yeah, 13 minutes, 39 seconds as of right now since the last difficulty adjustment. Um, but this is a beautiful uh, case study in, in Bitcoin's resiliency as a distributed network. Yeah, it really is the honey badger, right? Um, pretty much this, 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 huge, this huge black swan event happens. Half of the hash rate shuts off. Everyone's scrambling and the network keeps just chugging along as if nothing happened for the most part. Yeah, is that... Is that would you estimate the amount of hash rate that came off the network? I've seen anywhere from like 70x a hash to... I mean, you mean about half the... Yeah, about half the global network hash rate, I would say. Because I think we hit a high of somewhere around 170, 175. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, like there's significant variance. So you can't get like very specific or super, super accurate numbers. But I would put it around there, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. And so how do you think um, moving forward, what, what do you think happens in China with mining? Um, do you think this ban extends to 
MicroBT and Bitmain to any extent? Do you think they, they start going after the manufacturers at all? Mm, that's an interesting question. I've thought about that in the last week in terms of the, the manufacturers. And uh, I'm, they, it seems they've covered themselves pretty well by setting up some, some plants, uh, MicroBT in Thailand and um, Bitmain in Malaysia. But I'm not sure what the ramifications would be should this DCP also target these manufacturers as well um, in terms of, you know, saying they can't make machines anymore, whether or not they would simply, uh, you know, move the entirety of their operations abroad and just keep operating from there. Um, but it definitely would create an incentive for another manufacturer to pop out outside that jurisdiction. That's for sure. If there aren't people already doing that kind of already, um, there have been people talking about that for a while now. I think we'll see in the next maybe year or two if that's actually going to be a reality in the near future or not. Um, and then, of course, we also have the foundries being established in in Arizona and is it Texas? The other one? Yeah, in Austin. The United States. Samsung. Samsung's going to do it. Do one in Austin. Yeah. And so that has hope, but um, you know, I, that's subsidized by the federal government. So I imagine the the Department of Defense would probably have first dibs on a lot of that stuff coming out of those foundries and probably wouldn't be accommodating to Bitcoin miners anytime soon. Um, but I think, I, I honestly, I, I can't really say what would happen besides some really short-term turbulence in the Bitcoin mining network and uh, supply chains for a lot of these machines. Now, uh, thankfully, there's a, a wealth of machines on the market right now that probably could tide over miners for a while if that were to happen tomorrow as Chinese miners sort of, especially the medium to small size ones that don't want to move their operations, just dump a ton of machines on the market and, you know, prices are sort of plummeting. But, um, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these miners, especially some of the, the larger ones are pretty well set up to, to move and they've been moving around for a while. So like one of the main seasonal shifts in mining was the wet season in China. And so they're pretty familiar with the, um, the logistics of moving miners across long distances which is no small task. And they were able to do it so efficiently that, you know, you can move a, a mining operation from Xinjiang to Sichuan for the rainy season and have some of those machines back up mining again in a matter of a couple of weeks. And uh, whether it be by, by truck or plane, um, a lot of these miners are already in their new homes and um, will soon be in their new homes from regions like Malaysia. Yeah. You haven't heard anything about uh, the CCP stopping shipments of of ASICs outside of China. Uh, I personally haven't. Um, a lot of the people I know have moved really, really quickly and early, and then some of the others have simply decided they don't want to sell their machines yet and have stuck them in warehouses. Um, and then, of course, the new machines aren't coming directly from China for from a lot of these larger buyers because they had intended to sort of send some of them abroad anyways. They're coming out of the uh, Malaysia or Thai plants. Um, and this is where, you know, there's many incentives to do this, mitigate risk as well as, you know, if you did want to send some machines to, say, the United States, the, the import tax from Malaysia is about 2.5%, as opposed to if you were shipping them from Shenzhen, they would be about 27%. Um, so I don't think it's as big of a problem for people I'm working with. And I haven't heard any reports directly from miners on the ground that their shipments have been stopped or seized by, by local authorities. I have heard some where people have moved some machines to regions in Latin America, like Argentina and, and customs has just decided to freeze them at port essentially. 
uh, which is a pretty significant issue. Yeah, that's not ideal. Um, a lot of what's going on right now, particularly the posturing from the CCP, uh, people are saying it has to do with the fact that it's the 100-year anniversary of the CCP's formation. I mean, I know you've lived in China and have a better understanding of the politics within the region there than I do. What, how, how significant is this 100-year anniversary? Um, and how significant is it playing into the decisions around the mining industry specifically? It's very, very, very significant. Um, to use the words of uh, one of the locals I know there, it's, um, you know, a thousand times bigger than in terms of symbolism and significance than say, uh, you know, the national holiday or golden week, national holiday being um, the first week of October. Uh, in the first week of October, everyone gets uh, the week off in China because it celebrates um, October 1st, 1949, when Mao sort of, you know, formally took power and established the CCP in China. And um, it's, it would be very difficult to kind of um, overestimate the effort that the Chinese government would put into sort of the, the symbolism and the theatrics and the, uh, let's say, cultural activities surrounding such an event. Um, a large theme in kind of Chinese politics and culture has been like creating a harmonious society. And that's been the goal of the CCP for quite some time. Um, what harmonious means can is very, very flexible and uh, that's intentional. So it can be used for basically whatever they want it to mean. Um, so, you know, you're, you had seen them start building up the narrative and some of the uh, state sponsored news outlets when BTC started getting to 50 to 60 K, you have a lot of these guys saying, you know, be careful. It's, it's very volatile. You can, you can lose a lot of money and you know, the, the price, going all the way down to the, into the 30, uh, 30K range to 35K range can be seen as disruptive to social harmony and but people losing their money from, from scams, people uh, you know claiming that they have the next best coin, like this plus token or whatever that came out a couple of years ago. There's no shortage of those. There's always a plus token going on in China or India or some part of the world. And it's basically bad optics for the CCP, or at least they see it as bad optics. Um, and, you know, then there's also what kind of accelerated events in Sichuan as well is that the government and President Xi Jinping was actually going out to visit some of these hydro plants. Um, hydropower is pretty significant in terms of uh, the symbolism of the party in China. Um, many, 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 many party members have hydro engineering degrees and um, there have been extensive hydro uh, hydropower projects throughout all of China, mostly concentrated in Sichuan and Yunnan. And, you know, as they tour these facilities, there's there's no way in hell that they're going to have, uh, you know, uh, racks or, or mining machines present in these plants um, after a ban has been placed on them. So, yeah, I guess I guess in short, um, you're going to see a lot of things, I think, change or get cracked down on in China for this hundred year celebration. Um, we're just hyper aware of Bitcoin mining and the Bitcoin side of things. So that's what we're focusing on. This is going to just be one facet of you know, business or various aspects of society over there that's going to change. Uh, I think there's a big question mark on whether it will be permanent or if, you know, three to six months after the 100 year anniversary that it will be allowed to sort of start back up again quietly. Um, naturally, there's plenty of incentives on the provincial level to facilitate this business and get it going again. Um, 
but yeah, it's it's uh, it's really at the the government's discretion over there. So it's more of a wait and see. And I think that's why some miners over there have opted to put their machines in warehouses and long-term storage, because maybe they are uh, betting that within you know three to six months after the celebrations and official holiday that um, people will be able to return to mining again, and they're not comfortable selling off their machines at their machines at extremely cheap rates quite yet, and they want to hold out a bit longer and see. But it's it's really interesting. Um, probably go on for for ages and ages about um, all the potential things that could be happening surrounding the, the 100 year anniversary and probably look at the the 2008 Olympics as a good example of just how drastically and quickly China can decide to change um, industries, um, culture, media, what have you in preparation of a specific goal. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. I, I had no idea about the hundred year anniversary until a couple of weeks ago, and it seems to be pretty important over there, um, as, you, as you've described. Uh, it's just crazy that um, these these types of events can can be black swan events for the Bitcoin network. It's not something you prepare for um, five years ago. Saying, "Oh, in five years it's going to be the hundred year anniversary of the CCP," and we want harmony in Bitcoin mining. Is is throwing a wrench in in the the harmony, harmonious uh, goals of of the CCP? Yeah, that it's uh, really interesting to kind of be in the middle of it. Like on the metro, you see there's TV screens in the metro and ads as you go by in the metro, and you know it'll be Xi Jinping on the Great Wall with a bunch of people surrounding him and him like shaking everyone's hand, and you know the the peasant farmers smiling at you from from Yunnan or like Gansu or some of the more rural Western regions and being super happy at the prosperity that uh, the CCP has ushered in over the last 30 years, 40 years. And um, uh, at every bus stop there, you know, there's these pro government ads playing and there are posters outside my apartment um, saying stuff like Igual or, um, you know, which, which means patriotism. It's like directly translates to love of country or, you know, other things like democracy or um, uh, harmony, um, social harmony, uh, taking care of elders and things like that um, as part of these greater campaigns every so often to uh, go in line with certain holidays specifically related to the establishment of the CCP and its uh, greater goals. Yeah. Yeah, what if they do just have the celebrations and then three to six months after mining quietly comes back? What what do you think? Do you think the hash rate within Chinese, excuse me, China's border will ever get anywhere near it was before six, eight weeks ago? Ever? Ever, 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 ever. ever. Uh, I don't, I don't foresee that happening anytime in in the near future or even in the next five years maybe um i imagine it wouldn't be sort of allowed in every single province again Uh, maybe some areas like sichuan i could see it coming back because the miners were using energy that was just sitting there unused for the most part i think more than 50 percent of hydropower in sichuan is not used (laughs) so there's there's a good reason and 
there's uh, for miners to mine there. And there's also isn't a whole lot of good reasons for the government to care if miners use some of that energy because it's just sitting there not being used. Otherwise, it's pretty far away from significant population centers and it's almost impossible to actually transport that energy to those population centers at the moment. Um, so it's, uh, I think currently it's just more of an optics thing for that region. And I could see in the future, potentially next year, it coming back to some of the the um, regions with plentiful hydropower in, say, Yunnan and Sichuan. But when it comes to areas like Xinjiang, which a lot of it's based on um, coal mining, and a lot of it, I think, was uh, maybe not a lot, but some of it being subsidized by the government itself, it's probably not as likely. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, these miners that are just leaving their ASICs in warehouse, where, <clears throat> warehouses, uh, that's a risky bet. They're playing chicken. Uh, yeah, they are. I, I was kind of upset. I wanted to buy some. I'm trying to buy some at good rates off some of these guys. And they're like, no, nope, we want to we wanna keep it in the warehouse for now. So I'm like, damn. So I'll try again next week. Yeah, let's wait for you. I mean, I, how low do you think the price per terahash goes? Um, over the summer into fall, I could see it getting down forties, thirties. Oof! For what? Uh, for what generation of machines? Yeah, for for the new gens. Yeah. Uh, what is that? It's like at forty six, forty eight right now. Around there, I for the new gen into late summer. Goodness, I'm seeing some like brand new S nineteen ninety five terahashes for five k per unit now, and S nineteen pros for. 6,200 per unit. We can probably, God, if it if it continues on the the downtrend, I imagine we we could probably get to like the 38 to 40 dollars per terahash range. But at a certain point, I think you know those prices are just going to get so attractive that you'll see a lot of people start buying it up. I think there's a lot of people waiting yeah. for those prices to get lower, and they'll you know the market will find a, a price floor for some of these things because with difficulty plummeting as well with the, the prices of the hardware plummeting, it's just a, it's too good of an opportunity to pass up for a lot of people sitting on the sidelines at that point, even if they're not going to start mining with them right away. If say there's a facility waiting to build out a little extra capacity and they're two to three months away, it would be a very good strategic move to accumulate as much of that hash rate uh, when it's cheap um, so that they could turn it online in those couple months. And yeah, not have to wait when it's available, and all of a sudden the price returns to sixty-seven dollars per terahash or something. Well, that's what I was going to say. Like, it's crazy how quickly this changes. So, so we're getting quotes for like one hundred eleven dollars a terahash at some point, like a couple months ago, um, and now it's <laughs> less than half that uh, for for some on the mining models, which is like insane how quickly. This can change. I guess that's another interesting dynamic to to observe moving forward. Is is how how tightly do the ASIC prices track the Bitcoin price moving forward? Like if we do recover um, price wise to the sixty thousand dollar range and above or around there, are the ASIC prices as reflexive as they have been in the past, considering the glut of supply that is still on the market as um, these miners look for rack space that that isn't there for at least another year. Um, what does that that dynamic look like? Like is it a lagging indicator in the future, at least temporarily? Um, while while you have a a plethora of machines on the market, I hope so, or at least a lot of miners hope so too. 
right? That's a, it's disconnected briefly because usually attract it so closely in terms of mining revenue and uh, pricing the hardware. But I think I think a lot of people knew a, a couple of months ago that pricing was starting to get really absurd when you saw uh, the price go into like the hundred five to hundred ten tera per tera hash um, range because you looked at some of the ROI periods for even really low rates of electricity on, on those machines. And the, the ROI period was something like 18 plus months in many cases. So um, that's when it became clear to me anyways, that there would probably need to be a correction in, in the pricing for the ASICs. And, you know, if, if the market in terms of the, the correlation between mining revenue and hardware pricing can get a little disjointed as there's an overabundance of machines on the market and price does begin to climb as difficulty has just adjusted lower, it's a, going to be very, very, rare opportunity for someone looking to get into mining. And um, I think a lot of people are going to be kicking themselves down the road if they don't take advantage of it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's a good segue into like, how would you quantify the opportunity for the rest of the market outside of China right now? Like, is this a once in a lifetime opportunity for the industry? Uh, yeah, I would, yeah, I would colloquially call it a once in a lifetime opportunity. Who knows, maybe five years from now after the, the next having um, Kazakhstan bans it or something. And then there's a similar situation. It won't be quite to the same magnitude, but um, uh, I think there's where a lot of the opportunity comes in for people outside of China, especially if they're not already kind of self-mining themselves, is um, the chance to really build out their their business in terms of um, like providing energy and, and hosting, right? So this is a huge chance for um, ton of these people to get in contact with miners that have a lot of capital from mining Bitcoin at scale over all this time. And then using some of that free flowing money and uh, demand for space to sort of exponentially grow and set themselves up to become some of the larger miners themselves two to three years from now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's massive the shift that's going on right now. Like you, you can set yourself up for the next decade if you execute uh, accordingly um, and are able to take advantage of the high demand for rack space and the low terahash per dollar prices we might be seeing over the course of the summer and this fall. Um, yeah, it's going to be massive. The especially here in North America, it feels like the timing of this as the mining industry in the United States and Canada specifically is maturing to uh, a point where it's like, a, it seems like even early spring um, or 2021 just feels like an inflection point for the North American mining industry uh, in terms of like breakaway um, speed. It seems like we're hitting a breakaway point and this is just throwing fuel on the fire. Exactly. I think it's just going to, you're just going to see things accelerate from here. And it's not just North America too. Like I'm speaking with some people in Europe who are taking advantage of the situation and have, you know, uh, turned down 400 million euro, 300 million euro investment offers to build out like traditional data centers um, in favor of, you know, filling up the current, however many, a couple dozen megawatts they have, with uh, miners looking to move from China and then using that capital to build out the other capacity throughout these regions and then allowing themselves to sort of retain more control 
um, over the, the project's direction as well as the equity of said data centers. Um, they see it as themselves, even people that are traditionally not into Bitcoin mining and more interested in providing services to companies like Microsoft or something in terms of data uh, center services are even leaping up this opportunity to um, build out their their data center empire. Yeah, I guess that's another good question to ask you specifically. That's one of the worries that a lot of people have is, uh, yes, this presents an incredible opportunity for the North American mining industry and, and the mining industry outside of China in general. Uh, but people are worried that a lot of this hash rate is going to get up and migrate and and uh, lion's share of it is going to be stuck or distributed in the United States, which some would, would argue is a, a centralization risk of hash rate production. How is the distribution of, um, of this migration looking from your perspective? Uh, what, what percentage do you think will come to North America versus Europe versus Latin America versus Kazakhstan, Russia? you think it's pretty distributed or is there, um, is there a power law distribution going on here? I think it's going to be an overall net positive, right? So when you look at the, the distribution of hash rate prior to these events happening, you could have anywhere, you know, more conservative estimates were around 60% of the hash rate um, within Chinese borders. And, you know, I would place it at higher than that, maybe closer to 70. Um, and I don't think we're to, to be worried about hash rate moving um, and be worrying about, you know, it potentially being concentrated too much in say the United States you're basically asserting that uh, within the next six months, there's going to be a shift from the previous paradigm to now 60 to 70% of hash rate existing in the United States, which I just don't see happening. Um, a lot of it is moving to Kazakhstan. A lot of it is moving to Russia. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's miners even setting up operations, albeit smaller ones in various parts of Africa. Now there's um, Latin America is gearing up. Um, I mean, of course, Venezuela has been interested in mining for quite some time. Um, some of the issues they have with their, their own currency over there and the state getting involved, but also Argentina is getting more interested in creating more capacity. There's, you know, massive projects in Paraguay where um, while currently they sell 80% of their power generated by hydro to Brazil um, at some insanely low rate, they still have massive quantities of capacity to host miners and are always looking for more machines. And that's only going to increase um, as time goes on. And, you know, often people, oftentimes people lump North America together, but, you know, Canada isn't the same as the United States and it has its own provinces within itself as well. And is protected somewhat from some of the potential carte blanche banning that we saw from China. So um, I don't think that we're going to see 60 to 70% of hash rate be concentrated in say the United States uh, when this all sort of is finished shaking out. Um, and I think we're going to see a much more distributed, uh, you know, global network hash rate in terms of which countries it's located in than we did prior to these events. You know, when talking about specific percentages or numbers, that would all just be speculation. Um, but uh, naturally, uh, North America is going to capture much more of the market share than it previously had. But I, I don't foresee it being an equally uneven distribution as it was before. I think people are just worrying a little too much and kind of playing through doomsday scenarios in their head when they're doing that. Yeah. Oh, that's great to hear. No, and that's what I would expect. You, know, you mentioned Paraguay. Like they've, they've got a lot going on there. Um, Latin America seems poised to to jump into the, the Bitcoin 
market in general and obviously mining would would be a part of that as well and um obviously Scandinavia is a sleeper as well i think people are kind of overlooking that because traditionally a lot of the there's been you know a couple large players mining in these regions like iceland uh you know genesis was probably what made iceland really popular in the mining scene they were the first to kind of go over there and and popularize it as a mining destination and norway it was probably um I don't know if I'm actually allowed to say that, so I won't. <laughs> but I, I think uh, um, I think you'll see Norway and Sweden pop up as uh, mining meccas of Europe here in the next couple of years, maybe a lot sooner than you think. Hell yeah. This is beautiful to see. It's beautiful to see. Just uh, the natural incentive to to mine cheap Bitcoin is is naturally distributing the, the production of hash rate. Um Thank you for the assist, China. So that's another thing, I guess. I would like to pose to you another question: Is like, isn't there like an old adage that um, China, for some reason or another, whenever they're uh, positioned to take a, a a sort of powerful place in the world and and be a leader, they they sort of hand it over and and balk at the opportunity or mess it up somehow. And it seems like this could be. A situation where if we are at an inflection point um, in the world, particularly around the future of money and that potentially being Bitcoin, um, is this a situation where China's shooting themselves in the foot um, pretty early on in the game by just handing over this hash rate um, to the rest of the world? So your question is, China, <laughs> you're, you're asking me, is China shooting itself in the foot? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a yes. <laughs> that, that's uh, that's an easy one for me. Um, any, you know, of course, it's going to be biased coming from us. We're we're huge Bitcoin fanatics, and naturally, we've kind of gone all in by nature of our jobs. And I don't know about you, but um, my pocketbook as well. Um, yes, my pocketbook. And and do people still say pocketbook? Should I say that? Am I dating myself, even though I'm not that old? I mean, weird. You- if you work, walk around with a purse, it's a little weird, but yeah. <laughs> I said pocketbook, man. What you, <laughs> you've entered the spin zone. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I mean, even if you kind of take out the the, the you know absolute fandom that we have for um, super fandom of, of, of Bitcoin and, and the mining network specifically, if you're, you know, you remove any uh, lucrative business from within your borders, what is now about like right now? It's around a trillion dollar industry and um, that's providing, you know, uh, two new giant uh, manufacturers uh, and then also a third smaller one in the form of Canon, um, you know, using a ton of, I guess, fair to say, dormant electricity in various parts of your um, in your country that would otherwise just be wasted, um, you know, providing jobs in these local regions. Uh, Chinese farms were much more labor intensive in terms of like people on the ground than their Western counterparts in a lot of ways. Um, they were hiring locals uh, from that region, which otherwise maybe wouldn't have as much job opportunity. Um, you know, the, the money they they put in uh, around those communities in terms of like, you know, setting and donating to schools or um, different charities was pretty significant from what I understand. Um, and, you know, it, it facilitated just a lot of a general investment in the region as people were looking to continue to expand these mining operations and and regions that were otherwise ignored for investment. You know, there there aren't too many people that are interested in um, pumping a bunch of money in 
uh, a region with not significant economic development in the middle of nowhere, uh, like Western Xinjiang. Um, it's, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't be too attractive for a private investor to do so. You know, there may be state investment and redirection and redistribution of resources into those regions for geopolitical or strategic reasons. Maybe there's some natural resources they want over there, as we know in Xinjiang. Um, but, uh, I feel like they've, they've lost and shot themselves in the foot on so many different levels that, um, uh, They'll, they'll definitely regret it in the future. However, you know, that being said, the, the individuals, maybe they, they don't necessarily have to regret too much, especially the ones that are simply up and moving their operations to new regions because they still get to participate in the industry just from, um, from a distance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with that in mind, what, what, in your opinion, does the, the Western mining industry need to improve the most to accommodate um, this this flow of hash rate um, and the hosting of of Chinese miners. Obviously, we've talked about the need to build out capacity to actually take it on. But in terms of service providing for this type of client, what what needs to be improved in in the Western mining market? Um, I think they, in my personal experience, they need to make everything as plug and play as possible, um, and kind of adjust business offerings to. Um, cater to some of these clients and what they've been used to, maybe not entirely, but make sure that um, that they understand that doing business in a place like China um, is very, very different than doing business in a place like the United States, and that they're going to have to learn to navigate some of these um, cultural obstacles and ways that they're used to doing business. Um, so on, on a service level, though, I would say simplifying it and offer pricing that's as like, legible and straightforward as possible. Um, aligning incentives by making sure that when there ever is a revenue share agreement, that it's purely based on profit and not just revenue. Um, uh, allowing the miners that are moving machines over to regions like North America from China to have as much of a kind of direct um, oversight of their machines as possible, like allow them to send in their managers or inspectors should they want to and need it and maybe have one or two people on the ground at all times that, you know, give them a sense of security and are a good communication channel. Um, And really it's just about like facilitating trust and good relationships. Um, In my experience over there, so long as you prove that you're a a trusted partner and you're looking out for their interests, um, they're very, very, um, accommodating and um, understanding of anything you want to do and very supportive as well. So I would say it's in kind of the avenues of communication, uh, simplifying the business offering and making sure that, you know, you would treat them like any other client um, that you're looking out for their best interests at all times. But on, on like a non-service level, I think, and maybe not, not really directly related to, um, where the miners are coming from at all, it would be important for the U.S. to really sort of clear up a lot of this FUD and misinformation going around uh, concerning energy usage and and Bitcoin mining. So, um, you know, as we saw in the last couple of weeks, people like Elizabeth Warren uh, get on the Internet and start saying a bunch of stupid shit concerning Bitcoin mining, like trying to use metrics of uh, transactions per watt consumed as if that mattered. Um, as we can see, you know, hash rate has pretty much been cut in half and we're still processing as, 
you know, a normal amount of transactions, like the transactions that are being processed aren't necessarily cut in half as a result. It's not a useful metric to use and it's not correlated to one another. Um, making sure people understand that, you know, there's a, there's a wide energy mix and that energy consumption does not equal energy emission. Understanding that, you know, the vast majority of emissions <laughs> by a wide margin aren't coming from Bitcoin mining. They're coming from things like just pumping methane into the atmosphere or um, various other industries like like traditional gold mining that, that dwarf Bitcoin in terms of those aspects. And also just understanding that uh, really, uh, which I think is a point that's not highlighted enough, is the value, is educating people on the value that Bitcoin brings to everyone and why the why mining is so important in securing that value. Um, I think uh, when you hear some of these politicians speak like Elizabeth Warren, it's very, very clear that uh, no amount of energy usage to secure the Bitcoin uh, network is appropriate. Uh, and that's fundamentally because they see no value in it. And, you know, it, it's not useful or productive to get into a conversation about like, well, actually, you know, there's a healthy energy mix. It's much more, uh, quote unquote, green than pretty much any other industry you compare it to. And it's trending more so in that direction each passing year. It, it's not a terribly productive conversation or narrative to, to uh, necessarily have when uh, the people you're speaking to uh, don't find any value in it whatsoever. So it doesn't really matter. It could be 100 percent. Uh, renewable and they probably would still not be okay with it. Um, so I, I think a huge part of it's going to be definitely education and making sure the public knows that if there's a Bitcoin mine somewhere in Texas, that has nothing to do with the fact of whether or not they can turn on their air conditioning that day during the summer. Yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. We need these people, no amount of quote unquote renewable or green energy will be enough. They'd, they truly think Bitcoin's a Ponzi that enables drug dealers and terrorists and, and nothing else. And I completely agree. We need to hammer home the point that there is inherent value in a peer-to-peer distributed cash system um, that, that facilitates the movement of a, a scarce digital good. Uh, there's an incredible value in that. I mean, and it's being played out in the market every day particularly remittance markets in, in Latin America and um, t- across the world where, where people typically can't get money or access to bank accounts. Um, Bitcoin's providing incredible value for these people around the world. It provides value for me and you, as you said, uh, a lot of our, our, a lot of the, the money in our pocketbooks is Bitcoin uh, and that the purses, <laughs> purses, the ability uh, to, Preserve value and purchasing power over time uh, provides me with an immense amount of utility as well. There's a, a lot of value I've been provided personally, uh, monetary value, social value, uh, intellectual value. I get to have conversations with people like Edward Evenson here, uh, which is extremely valuable uh, in and of itself and a little bit tangential. Wow. Wouldn't it be possible without Bitcoin? Edward, would, it we, had, the compliment. would we have ever met if it wasn't for Bitcoin? Probably not. No more whipping sounds or seen queso or. <laughs> Speaking of that, how, how are things going at Brains? Should we do a little Brains update here at the end? Um, brains, are we at the end already? We're getting close. Wow. Just time flies when, when you're having fun, huh, Martin? Yeah. I, I feel I was worried. Like I, I've, I have to be really careful that I don't 
like say any information that's protected by NDA or, or confidential. So I was worried that I was maybe being a little too high level or general with some of these topics. So if there's anything more like uh, detailed or granular you want me to go into, um, I'd be happy to do so. But um, if not, I could jump into some brains updates. I think you covered everything I wanted to. Is there anything popping up in, in your mind that you, you feel compelled to, to elaborate on? Um, I guess we covered some of the logistics stuff. I don't really need to go into pricing or anything like that, but yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess the, the, I'll kind of wrap it up with, um, what, it, you know, it's, it's a really, 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 really interesting time to be in the industry and to kind of witness all these things unfold. And, um, if anyone's not feeling extra motivated, when they're listening to this, that is participating in this, this beautiful Bitcoin mining industry. Um, I would say opportunity abounds. Um, no shortage of opportunity abounds on pretty much every single facet of Bitcoin mining right now. And um, if you put in some, some hustle at the moment, you're going to be set up extremely well for, as you said, the, the next five to 10 years. Um, don't let it, don't let it pass you by. And um, on that, I will, I guess, head to some brains updates. What's new? What's new over here at brains? Uh, as I said before the call, Prague is beautiful. Prague is sunny. The golden beer is flowing. That's delicious cold pilsner. Um, uh, other than the Czech Republic itself and its beauty and beer, um, software is progressing nicely. Um, the the S19s are moving a lot faster than we anticipated just because of all the work we had already done on all the previous ant miners and some of it's applicable to the S19s and seeing some really promising stuff with that. Um, what's miners are progressing nicely as well. We're learning a lot of new interesting things about some of the, the chips that are, that are in the machines and trying to confirm some data points before we start releasing this into a, a public beta. Um, I know you're probably interested in specific dates but uh, when? But uh, when? Edward, when? Where's your whip? What, your whip out. I want, I want you <laughs> pick up your laptop, get your whip, and walk over to the firmware development team and just start whipping them. Right. If now. I give any dates, the whip will be turned on me. There'll be an uprising, and I will be beaten to a pulp. Um, so we'll just have to we'll have to keep that on the down low for now. But um, as I said before, we're definitely optimizing for some immersion setups. We've been doing a lot of experiments and optimizations on the software for immersion cooling, um, seeing some pretty crazy results, very quickly tuned, very stably run uh, machines, you know, running at uh, 100% more terahash than they were at essentially the same efficiency. Okay. So um, immersion is definitely something we've been focused on recently, um, adding new features, making the, the the web tools idiot-proof. Our new GUI, you don't even really have to interact with command line anymore. It's all enter a, some text into a box or click some buttons and you're good to go. Um, the manager is always under project, uh, always under some, uh, some work. That's released for all the models we currently support on the software right now. So you get a free spiffy manager for all your devices running it. Um, and you need you know, to be running Brains OS Plus to access that manager, right? Yes, that won't always be the case in the future, but right now it is because um, it's just a, an added bonus feature for people that use the firmware. And um, 
yeah, what else? I mean, not too much I can actually share without getting in trouble, but um, Get in trouble. things are progressing Get very, very nicely. Nice, Everything. Nice good world. Is, Get in some trouble. Wait, <laughs> the future is bright, and people will be very happy. I can guarantee that. You know, I know um, Austin will be happy when you get him that What's Minor firmware. So I, I need you. It's not me doing this. It's him behind me saying, like, get on it, Marty. Like, we need, we need, we need more hash. Those machines will sing when you put it on. Don't worry. Oh. Um, it's, yeah. uh, it's a pleasure working with the What's Minor machines. They're, they're made very well, and they make our lives easier as a result. Um, there's one other thing in, in regards to that that um, oh I should mention because uh, now that I that I am interacting again with with so many miners from from China um, as well this this seems to be a common topic as well uh, from a lot of people I'm running into some people seem to be under the impression that if they use Brains OS Plus that they have to use Slushpool with it which is not the case and I'm not sure how that started circulating around you can actually use it with any mining pool. Um, I imagine this was circulated around China just because that's sort of what Bitmain was trying to do. They were like with their, their overclocking firmware trying to force people into Ampool mm-hmm. um, when giving it out. But uh, that is not the type of approach we have to, to business. So you don't have to, to worry about that from us. Um, but of course, we, we provide incentives if you do want to use Slush Pool in tandem with it. It's free pool fees, or rather uh, no pool fees if you use the firmware with the pool. But uh, yeah, just to reinforce that, you can use any mining pool you like. Um, you heard it else? hurts. We're squashing misinformation. Brains OS Plus. Exactly. Not specific to, to slush pool. You can go point that that hash anywhere you want. And in terms of products, what else is new? A couple of weeks, there's going to be new, some new stuff to the pool. So the devs have informed me on that. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to get more flexible payouts. More yeah. Splitting, better splitting uh, capabilities, too. Yeah, so you'll be able to, you know, say, as is often the case, you have multiple investors in an operation. So you have, you know, five and you want to split out the payouts evenly. You can set all payouts to be split, you know, 20% each of payouts to each party involved. And you can set it at time intervals you'd like to, whether you want to make the withdrawal happen every single month or every week or every day for accounting purposes. It's very flexible and customizable, um, which is going to be like one of the, the main attractive features. And then, of course, you know, the whole brand new UI and UX and all that jazz. Um, and master sub accounts, things like that will be coming out soon after that. Um, you can already do them now, but we just kind of set them up for you. And the new version, you can kind of create them at your own leisure. Um, and then everything else is kind of stealth mode. I can't really talk about the other stuff we're doing. Um, I'm very excited to release some of that stuff later this year. Get in trouble. Yeah. Get in trouble. Give the free. I don't want to. I don't want to piss off Yana Pavel. They're just. The nicest guys, and they've been good to me. So, All right. gotta make sure they're happy. I'm not gonna make you. I don't want to piss off Jan and Pavel either. So, I won't make you. I don't like seeing them cry. <laughs> I can't imagine Jan. Gonna hang out in Miami, man. What the hell? You ditched me last time we were in Miami. Well, uh, yes, I'll see you in Miami in three weeks, and we will hang out more. I'm sorry, Bitcoin 2021. I was a, a bit busy. A lot going on. Okay. Well, I'm sorry for flipping you off in front of your audience there. Yeah. 
well, thank you for being part of the audience. You know, I can take a middle finger. It's uh, taken many in my life. What's one more, especially if it's coming from Edward Evenson, the man working on my What's Minor firmware, or cracking the whip on, on the people who you know, my What's Minor firmware. Um, I thought you oh. turned the crowd against Kevin O'Leary when he walked by your stage. <laughs> Kevin. Kevin. I'll buy your green coins, Kevin. What, how did he become just such a figure in the space very quickly? It was very annoying. Uh, he's good at sound bites. You know, he's, um, I guess he's similar to all the t reality TV stars in that way because uh, he was on a reality TV show, right? That Shark Tank thing. Yeah. Um, so he goes on CNBC and creates these sound bites like Blood Coin and Green Coin, these just like ridiculous made up concepts that no one actually subscribes to. Um, and, you know, says he speaks and knows a bunch of people that will only buy Bitcoin if it does this. And, you know, none of these things, of course, ever really manifest. Um, but it, it's good. It's good for him. Right. It's it's good for his uh, his image. And, He's you know, as someone who does what he does, you have to speak about whatever's popular and kind of hot at the time. Right. Yeah. But like he was part of the Bitmain event in China, like the. Uh, <laughs> you mean that weird video where he's like sunburnt in the front seat of his car and he's like speaking into his cell phone camera yeah, like what why is kevin o'leary talking to the chinese mining industry he's called their coins blood coins why are they accepting it exactly maybe it was to to tell them that um you know if they were to move their miners to uh, north america they would have to use um purely renewable energy because that's the only way anyone would ever buy Bitcoin within U.S. borders. Yeah. The, the institutional money is not going to come unless Kevin O'Leary signs off. Um, so exactly. self-elected spokesperson for the institutions. Fuck that dude. Edward. What was that? What'd you say? I said fuck that dude. <laughs> Edward, are you drinking Pilsner's tonight? It's Wednesday in Prague. Is it a good Wednesday game? in Prague. Um, I'm actually taking salsa and bachata lessons Ooh. in anticipation for my my return to uh, Latin America. As you know, I was in Mexico for three and a half months, um, avoiding the quarantine here in the Czech Republic that's now gone, luckily, and having a, a grand old time with our, our friend Ethan Vera over at Luxor, as well as my buddy Dan here at Brain. Yeah. Where are you gonna go and off? I realized that everyone dances over there. Literally everyone salsa dances very like extremely well and so whenever i was going out you know some girl comes up you want to dance type of thing it's like well no i don't want to you know make a fool of myself and look like a complete idiot i did a couple times anyways but now at least when i um returns so i plan on going to columbia later in the year i want to actually be able to uh participate in that stuff and it's a lot of fun you know um it just so happens that my neighbor is a former european champion in salsa dancing so she's a very very good instructor and hopefully i'll I'll get good enough to not look like a complete idiot when I go back there. I'm Edward Evenson, salsa dancing. Everybody's getting into it. He's a he's a man of culture. <laughs> he's able to he's able to talk uh, about the Chinese mining migration, and he can he can sweep you off your feet with a salsa dance. They're going to be going to Cartagena or Medellin when you go to Colombia. I want to be going to as many places as possible. I'd like to go to Cartagena. I'd like to go to Medellin. Um, there's some areas in the south that I know some friends and my uncle have recommended that I would love to check out as well. Um, but yeah, I'll, I, when I travel, I kind of just kind of wing it. I play it by ear. There's maybe like one or two spots I have on a list that I'd like to visit and kind of vague areas around there. And then I kind of just uh, see where the trip takes me after that. Hell yeah. Hell yeah.
I'm going to live vicariously through your Colombian trip. It's uh, kind of hard to to make that stuff happen when you have a, a 17 month old anchoring you down to to your physical location and waking. You mean bringing immense joy to your life? Yeah, yeah, that as well. That as well. <laughs> um, immense joy waking me up at 4:30 in the morning, and not going back to bed. It's a great way to start a Wednesday. You get the juices flowing. You prepare for this interview, which has been an incredible conversation. I think we've learned a lot. I think uh, I think your knowledge into what's going on right now in terms of this this migration is valuable. So I thank you for your time this afternoon, Edward. It's uh, it's always a pleasure. I can't you don't wait. have to say that just because we're a sponsor, Marty. <laughs> well, disclaimer: Brains is a sponsor of the podcast. <laughs> no, but it truly. I, I'm looking forward to actually hanging out in Miami later this month, uh, and we'll have much more time uh, at this conference because I will not be participating at all outside of being a participant, not a, not on any panels, not on any, not giving any speeches, not recording any podcasts. So I'll have a lot of free time. Show up to the booth, and we'll outfit you with some swag, man. I got plenty of swag. I, I can always use more, though. Um, is there anything we should wrap up here with? Any final thoughts? Any final words of wisdom? Words of wisdom. Um, I don't know. Damn. Now you got my mind. You don't have to. Just push yourself out of your comfort zone. Do shit you wouldn't normally do. And you'll probably have a blast and just become a much better, more rounded, more interesting individual for doing so. Yeah. Get into salsa dancing, freaks. I think. Get into salsa dancing. Do some bachata. Learn some Chinese. Eat some cheese. You know? Maybe an oyster. Nah, nah. Get out of your <laughs> I've stepped out of that my comfort zone in that regard far too many times already. I've just been sadly, sadly disappointed every single time because cheese is disgusting yeah. and should be eradicated from the face of the planet and yeah. offers no nutritional value and serves no purpose rather than to pretty much worse than every single dish you put it on. You're an uncultured swine. Um, and that's where we're going to end it. We're going to end it by calling Edward Evenson an uncultured swine who doesn't eat cheese or oysters and just doesn't know how to live life. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your information. That's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. Peace. <laughs>